Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer before we open God's word. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have your word as an anchor for our soul because we need to live in the basis of reality, and reality is defined by your thinking. It's defined by your creation, and it is defined by the rules that you have established for the operation of your creation. And Father, we live in a world today that is probably not too different from much of the ancient world, where people are making it up as they go along. They're making up their own gods and goddesses, whether they are physical idols or whether they are mental idols. They are focusing not upon the creator of all of the heavens and the earth, but on just their own inner idolatrous imagination. So, Father, we pray that we would be different, that we would recognize that most of what we learn is a direct contradiction of what the world thinks, and that we are to think differently and therefore live differently, and that our perception and our interpretation of what is going on around us is going to be markedly different from those around us. May we have the courage to be steadfast and to stand on your word and to always ask the question, well, what does God say and not what does man say? And so, Father, we pray that you would continue to strengthen us in the inner man, that you would continue to give us a challenge to learn to love one another as Jesus Christ loved us by giving himself as a substitute for us on the cross. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're continuing our study. From last time, we looked at substitutionary atonement as it is depicted in the Old Testament. And today we're going to look at it as it is depicted in the New Testament. And substitutionary atonement, as I have pointed out, is a doctrine that has not always been clearly understood in the history of Christianity. And in much churches today that call themselves Christian, it also is not clearly understood. There are many of those who have been influenced by either a um, liberalism, 19th century liberalism, or B, the neo-orthodoxy that came out of the period after World War I, 100 years ago, or they are just motivated by emotion and subjectivity, and so they think it's just so cruel to think that God would cause Jesus to suffer and die because of what other people did, which means that their starting point is always what makes them feel good and not how God has defined uh, external reality. 
So our passage in Ephesians 5.2 reiterates a walk command, which, as I have pointed out, is central to understanding this second division of Ephesians. The first division is to understand the wealth of the believer, what God has already provided for us, that he has given us every blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Once we comprehend who we are in Christ and what that entails, then we realize that it means that we have this new identity. We're part of a new man, and which is the body of Christ. And so uh, we have to live with this new identity and the new standards for this new identity. And so starting in four one, we have the command to walk worthy of this calling. That The calling indicates our identity, all that we are in Christ, all that we have been given. It's our, it's our new vocation, as it were, in an older sense of that word. Uh, we are to walk worthy of the vocation with which we have been called. And then in 4.17, it was a negative command. Don't walk, don't live your life, don't conduct your life, don't have the values, don't have the likes and dislikes and the inclinations of the world around them, around you, because the world around us is has their likes and dislikes their uh, favorite things and their lack of favorite things, their values, everything are shaped by the devil's world. They're, sh- they're shaped by the values of the old man, the culture of death. That is the culture of every single unbeliever in one way or another. And we have to understand, third, this command to walk in love because biblical love, as I've pointed out so many times, is not what the world thinks of. Biblical love is a fruit of the Spirit. It's produced by a walk by the Spirit. So therefore, it's not something that unbelievers can do on their own. And we are to walk by means of love. And the pattern for that is the work of Christ on the cross. And the work of Christ on the cross has to be understood correctly. Because if you think of the of the death of Christ on the cross as a ransom to Satan, that's going to lead you in one way of thinking about love. If you think about it as just satisfying the government of God, which is not the same as the doctrine of propitiation, that's going to lead you in another false path. And these other false paths are all going to be shaped by human viewpoint thinking, which makes the ultimate authority our opinion, our thinking, our feelings, something along those lines. So we are to walk by means of love. This is defined as a mental attitude towards others that's defined that that wants the best for them as defined by God's standards. Not the best for them because it makes us happy that they do what we want them to do, but best because God defines what the best is. So it's an objective standard there. It's not a selfish standard uh, because a lot of us are we have kids you have parents, you have friends, and you want them to do certain things. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about that your desire is for them to mature biblically and grow and mature as a Christian and pursue those those areas of spiritual growth, making God the highest priority in life. So that's where it starts. And the pattern for us is that Christ loved us, And then it says that he gave himself for us. 
Now, the command to, that he loved us, we see that going back to John thirteen thirty four and 35, where Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples. A disciple is not just a believer. A disciple is a believer who wants to pursue aggressively his spiritual growth in relationship with God. In John fifteen twelve, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. So there we see that idea of substitution, that uh, the preposition there. We're going to talk a little bit more about prepositions uh, later on, but uh, prepositions are really important. I had a seminary professor that was noted for the fact that he would say that the most important things to observe in in uh, exegesis are the particles, the little words, the ands, and the fors, and the therefores, and the alsos, and how you understand these conjunctions and these uh, smaller words. The others are important, but the things that connect thoughts together and structure thoughts are these smaller words. So this is one of three words we'll talk about this morning that indicate substitution. And this is the word hooper, and it can be combined with different cases. And in each case, it has a slightly different meaning, but when it's used with the genitive, it is a preposition for substitution, meaning doing something uh, as a substitute for someone else, doing something uh, that is a um, with reference to or instead of. That's that's the main idea. So in Ephesians 5, 2, Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. And that word give always, when Christ or God the Father or the Holy Spirit is the subject, it always refers to grace. Uh, gave himself for us. And this is continued in John six fifty one. Jesus said uh, uh, that the bread is that we we speaking of his body. He said, if anyone eats his bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. It's a substitutionary idea, but then it's further defined as an offering and a sacrifice. Now, this takes us right back to understanding certain Old Testament concepts of substitution. These two words that are used, prosphora, indicates something that did not necessarily involve an animal sacrifice. It could refer to a grain offering or it could refer to uh, some, a thanksgiving offering that didn't involve a blood sacrifice. But the word thusia indicates a sacrifice, a burnt offering, and often we find these two words uh, are, com- are combined. And then it is stated that this, this, that Christ's sacrifice and offering was a sweet smelling aroma to God the Father. Now that term was used a lot in the Old Testament to describe certain sacrifices and burnt offerings that it was a sweet smelling aroma. This was an idiom that God accepted the sacrifice. It's not necessarily an idiom that he likes barbecue, but probably. 
You know, I'm going to add that to, uh, you know, God liked beer. He didn't like wine. Jesus never drank the wine at the, that he turned the water into wine at the wedding of Cana. God always preferred a beer. You know why? Because in the Old Testament, God had a strong drink offering. They didn't know how to distill beverages then. The word literally means, if you look it up in the Hebrew lexicon, it means a grain uh, beer, a bar- barley beer. And so when God wanted a drink, he had a beer. Just remember that. <laughs> so it's a sweet-smelling aroma, barbecue and beer. God invented that. I'm sure of it. All right. So Hebrews 9-7 uses... Um, uses this as a background for what he is saying. Uh, uh, He says, but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, talking about him going into the Holy of Holies of the Day of Atonement, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. There's that substitutionary idea again through the preposition for. Hebrews 10, 5 through 5 and 8, 5, 8 and 10 rather, Notice the emphasis in these verses, sacrifice and offering. That's prosphora and offering. Uh, uh, sacrifice is thusia. Offering is prosphora. And these are quotations from the Old Testament. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Previously saying sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, all of those using the word prosphora. You did not desire nor had pleasure in them. And then in verse 10, but that, that we, but that, that will we have, uh, that, I must have transposed that, that we have, uh, that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So this was is used again and again, this combination of terms to describe the death of Christ on the cross. So Romans 12.1 again uses thusia, describing our living sacrifice. See, a thusia was usually a burnt offering. What did a burnt offering describe? What does a burnt offering mean? On burnt offering, they would take the uh, either a bull or they would take a goat or they would take a sheep or in cases of poverty, they would take a bird and they would put it on the altar and the whole thing burned up, which was ca- called a, a whole offering or a whole burnt offering to signify one's complete dedication to God, that all of one's life was dedicated to God, which is a perfect word to use uh, in Romans 12.1, that we are to present our bodies as a whole burnt offering. That so It's a living offering. It's not that we literally physically are, are immolated. As a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So as we have looked at these verses, it takes us to what the Bible teaches about a vicarious penal atonement. And last time I defined these words. It's important for us to develop the, you know, theological vocabulary. Uh, we've all heard people say that Greek is the most precise language to communicate biblical truth. Well, that was true at the time the Bible was written. 
But today, the most precise language doesn't mean it's precise in all the same areas. A lot of, I remember a lot of guys going to seminary, and once they got their a year or two of Greek, and they said, you know, the Greek is just as ambiguous as English, it's just in other ways. And that's just the nature of language. But we, um, we have developed, because of the rich heritage of Christianity in, among English-speaking peoples, going back to the, even the era before the Protestant Reformation, that we have d- developed language. You, you go as a missionary to other languages, they don't have the rich vocabulary that we do. You have to sort of make, it, make some things up as you go along. And I always remember going to Kazakhstan in 2000 with uh, George Meisinger and uh, and Jim Myers. And it was one of those beautiful scenic spots, high desert, temperature in the shade at by 10 in the morning was about 112 or 115. And we were in a building that was about the size of maybe half of this room that had about 150 students in it and one teeny tiny window unit in the back that managed to keep the room temperature down to a cool 95. And we would each, George and I were teaching, and we would each teach for about four or five hours in a boiler room. So that was that was really exciting to do that. But it was um, a great opportunity to deal with interpreters because half the class were Russian speakers. Another half were only Kazakh speakers. And I would say a sentence, and then the translator would translate it into Russian, and then the Kazakh translator would translate it into Kazakh. But it got real fun one day because they could the, the, the Kazakh speaker was the pastor's wife, and she had to take a student to get their visa problem taken care of. And she was the only one who spoke English in Kazakh. So they had a guy who was a Russian and Kazakh speaker. So it would get translated first into Russian. And the Russian translator wasn't very good. And we had to replace him pretty quickly. And then the Kazakh translator would translate it from Russian into Kazakh. You know that game we played called Gossip? This is really messed up. I've often wondered what they actually learned, especially since the poor Kazakh people, and I didn't know this till till I got there, and I was teaching on uh, on angelology and on Satanology. Now, where do you go to learn about the fall of Satan? Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the, the sons of God, Genesis. But they didn't have the Bible in Kazakh. They only had the New Testament in Kazakh. So not only am I telling them things that are going through two different translators, but they've never heard this because they've never read it in their only New Testament Bible. So it, you know, it was all up to the Holy Spirit. Who knows what they learned? So we have to get this vocabulary down. Vicarious means uh, is a synonym for substitute. It means to do something for another person. Penal is a legal punishment. We talk about um, a um, 
we talk about different aspects of that. We talk about a legal penalty comes from that uh, that same word, or we talk about a penitentiary comes from that same root, same root Latin word, and it has that idea of punishment according to law. And then atonement was a coined word, and that describes the totality of Christ's work on the cross, as we'll see. It was just a made-up word when they were trying to translate the Hebrew word. They they didn't have one that, that fit the bill, and they didn't know Hebrew well enough, and so they ended up creating a word. And so it's a picture of what is is depicted at the on the Day of Atonement, which is really the day of purification, the day of cleansing. That's a better translation uh, of, of the Hebrew word. This is the Ark of the Covenant. You have two angels looking down on what is the mercy seat, and the mercy seat is the lid on the box. Inside the box you have the broken Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod, um, Aaron's rod that budded, and manna, where each depicted a sin of the nation Israel. So it was a cleansing time. So atonement, which, as I just said, comes from a word at one month, which emphasizes more the idea of reconciliation. The blood sacrifice relates to the payment of a price, redemption. Third, the mercy seat relates to the satisfaction of God's righteousness and justice as he looks down on Christ's sacrifice. His justice and righteousness are satisfied. And fourth, because God is propitiated and the penalty paid, the debt of sin is canceled, and that's the idea of expiation. So I put together this little Pentagon chart where we have atonement at the center, but it relates to all five of these different dimensions of the cross, redemption, expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, and forgiveness. So that's all bundled up in this one word. So we looked at the Old Testament pictures of substitutionary atonement, Abraham and Isaac, the Day of Atonement and other sacrifices, and Isaiah 53. Genesis 22, verses 11 to 13, tell us the story. I'm not going through it again, but when he w- was in the process of, of sacrificing Isaac, he was stopped by the angel of the Lord, and uh, the angel of the Lord provided a sacrifice. And so we're told in the last line, Abraham offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. This is that picture of substitution. And then the place uh, he called the Yahweh Yireh in the Hebrew, the Lord will provide. And it is, the name of the mountains there was Moriah, which comes from the root word for Yireh, which is from ra'ah, meaning to see or to provide something. Then you have passages on the burnt offering, as mentioned in Leviticus 1 and 3, and where I covered the idea that atonement means to cleanse or to wipe clean more than it means anything else. So we looked at these things and how they're developed through Leviticus, which I'm going to skip over for lack of time. And we come to this uh, verse in Leviticus 4.20. And he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull as a sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement, that's kafar, for, for them. Now, this, the, 
It's a general preposition. Now, these prepositions are important. A lot of people want to skip over this. Oh, that gets into grammar. That's boring, whatever. But they tell us some important details. This is a preposition all. When you go to look at many of the prepositions in Hebrew, they're just common prepositions, and they can they can really be kind of difficult to under, understand. And so when we look at the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation that was made around 200 to 250 B.C. of the, of the Hebrew text, and it was translated by uh, Jewish rabbis who knew Hebrew. They knew what they were dealing with in the language. They preferred to translate uh, all of these prepositions with one Greek preposition, which was peri, P-E-R-I. And so it it was the primary preposition, the strongest preposition to indicate substitution. And so that was used for all of them, uh, and peri is used along with huper. But peri is probably more specific. We get to the New Testament. Romans 8.3 says, For what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh... God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for, peri, for in place of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And so we also looked at Isaiah 53, he's wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. Isaiah 53, 6, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So there it tells you what it is, not just using a preposition of substitution, but describes the substitution. Isaiah 53.8 says the same thing, that it is for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And um, I've translated this, corrected it. It should be for the living of the transgression of my people to whom the blow was due. It's clearly that substitutionary idea. So in the New Testament, we again see the importance, typo, the importance of Greek prepositions, three of them, anti, and then the two I've mentioned so far, peri and huper. So we'll see these. The examples that these prepositions have substitutionary meaning or clear. For example, in Romans 9.3, Paul said, I wished I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. It's a substitutionary idea. He wanted to be cursed instead of his brethren. He would have rather himself died and given his life so that they could all be saved. In Philippians, or Philemon 1.3, whom I wish to keep with me that on your behalf he might minister to me. Uh, Huper is on behalf of, or it's a substitutionary idea. And then John 11.50, nor do you consider that it is expedient. Now, who says this? Who says this? This is the high priest Caiaphas. And he says... Um, we, we've got to give up Jesus because, and he is inadvertently prophesying the truth. He says, Do, don't you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for or in the place of the people? 
and not that the whole nation should perish. It's so interesting how, you know, God has him make an unwitting prophecy about Jesus. So you also have it in John eleven fifty one. Now this he did. Uh, now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Christ would die for the nation, which Christ clearly did. In Luke eleven eleven, uh, at the market, Jesus is giving a parable and says, "If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone?" Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? See, it's uh, it's typically used with a substitutionary idea. And in John 1.16, Antti has the idea of substitution and of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace in the place of grace. One grace in the place of another grace. Now, one image that is picked up from the Old Testament and used in the New Testament to depict Christ's substitutionary death is the Passover lamb. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, Therefore purge out the old leaven. In other words, there's a confession of sin and removal of that sin from the life, that you may be a new lump since you are, since you truly are unleavened. And what he's talking about there is really that situation where they had been rather permissive about one man's sin of taking his father's uh, widow as his wife, which was forbidden by the law. Uh, that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us in our place. And so this is using the word huper. In uh, John one twenty nine, this uh, John uses the same idea. Uh, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It is Jesus functioning as our substitute that takes away the sin penalty. In Mark 10.45, we see... Uh, Christ presenting himself to serve God and mankind by giving his life as a payment for sin. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word for there is translated uh, translation of anti, meaning in place of or instead of. He's a ransom. This is the payment of a price. Greek scholar A.T. Robertson. Now, I'm not, there are a lot of people who claim to be, be Greek scholars, but he's got about a 1,400-page grammar that he wrote about 100 years ago that is the most in-depth grammar of the Koine language. He has a right to be quoted. He says there's the notion of exchange also in the use of anti. So he's just affirming that anti is another preposition of substitution. He says those who refuse to admit that Jesus held this notion of a substitutionary death take an easy way to get rid of the passages that contradict their theological opinions. In Luke 22:19, we have huper, when Jesus says, This is my body which is given for you, something we hear every month at the Lord's table, giving as a substitute. 
Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died in our place. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him who knew no sin for uh, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then we have another use of Perry in First John uh, 2, 2. Uh, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. This indicates unlimited atonement, not the Calvinistic idea that Jesus died only for the elect, but here it is that he is pro, uh, pro, uh, propitiation for the sins of the whole world, and that is a, um, a preposition of substitution. Because the word indicates substitution, we know that Christ paid the penalty for everyone. But just because the penalty's paid doesn't mean people are saved. It merely means that the penalty is paid, and by trusting in Christ as Savior, then they are regenerated because they've been spiritually dead. That problem has to be solved. When they believe in Christ, God gives them new life in Christ, and then he imputes to them Christ's perfect righteousness, and they are declared righteous. And 1 Peter 2.21 For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us. So you have, look look at this, you have two uses of the English preposition for. They have totally different meanings. That's part of the problem in translation, is that in English we have this overlapping of meanings in words like for that are not necessarily part of the overlapping of meanings in the Greek. So you end up translating uh, two different words, like the word hati that begins this, really has the idea, uh, it, it explains why something happened. And so in a lot of places, it should be translated because. In other places, it's giving another explanation, so you would translate it as for. But here, if it was translated because, uh, you, would, um, you would understand it better. Because to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, that's who pair, leaving us an example that you should follow, follow his steps. It gets even more fun in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So it starts off, with four. Again, it's like the previous verse, and it's using a hati, which should be translated or understood as, as explaining something, so it should be translated here as because. Because there's two other uses of four here. So you have to look at each one separately. Christ also suffered once for sins, and that's peri. So that we see as a clear preposition of substitution. And then the just for the unjust, you would think that he just repeats the same preposition, but he's wanting to really get our attention and emphasize it, so he uses a different Greek preposition, pair. So he's doubled down 
in this verse to make sure we understand the importance of substitution, that Christ died in our place and that he suffered physically. And although it is his time when God the Father judges him, imputes to him the sins of the world, he suffered physically as well. And that is part of the package, but it is not that part which for which uh, salvation is, is and the payment of sin really takes place. But he had to die. He had to die physically uh, for one reason, so that there could be a resurrection. And why was that? Because physical death was a consequence of the penalty of sin, which was spiritual death. And so by dying physically, he is able to demonstrate that, there, that he has conquered physical death, one of the greatest consequences of spiritual death. And so this emphasizes Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, reconciliation, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now these words that we see here are are used repeatedly in the sin offerings in the Old Testament. Hebrews 5.3, because of this he is required uh, as for the people so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. Writer of Hebrews is explaining the Old Testament sacrifices. Again, Hebrews 10, 26, that he remains a, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins because he paid that once and for all. So this is extremely important. Then Leviticus 5, 6, which is the background for the previous two statements, that the sinner in the Old Testament system would bring his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed. So it would be a substitutionary idea there. And again, in, in the Septuagint, it translates it with peri. So in conclusion, what we see here is, first of all, that the death of Christ is pictured in the Old Testament imagery as a substitution in the place of or instead of mankind, instead of the human race, instead of you or instead of me. Second thing that we have seen is that the prophecies of the work of Messiah teach that he will be a substitute in the place of the people. And that is so clear from Isaiah 53, that he is wounded for our transgressions. It's a substitute that our sins were laid upon him. Third, we learn from this that Christ paid the sin penalty for every single human being, every one of us. For this, But this does not automatically save us. See, this is a question. Theologians and seminary students bandy these things around. And so I remember one of the questions in soteriology when we were studying atonement was, does Christ's death automatically save people? See, if Christ only died for the elect, which is the Calvinist doctrine of limited atonement, then there's the implication that it is Christ's death that saves Well, Christ's death pays the penalty. It performs one-third of the work that is necessary. Christ died 
by paying the penalty, the legal penalty of sin for every human being. But as I've been saying, he, his death, uh, his death was directed toward, toward God and the legal penalty of sin. But we're still spiritually dead. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1. And we lack righteousness. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God may be in us. So we lack righteousness. We're unrighteous. All of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. Um, Paul says in Titus 3, 5, it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, because they're no good. And so Christ paid the sin penalty, but we have to have the spiritual death problem saved and the lack of righteousness problem saved. And so we must trust in his death, burial, and resurrection to be born again. The instant we trust in him, God the Father regenerates us. We are made alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2.4, and we receive his righteousness. And that God declares us then to be justified. First Peter 2.24 says, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. And second Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so the issue is for each person to answer this question positively. Have you received the free gift of salvation because you trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? Nothing added. You're not trusting in Jesus Christ in works. You're not trusting in Jesus Christ anything else. When you come to the Father, you're believing Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. If you add something to that, uh, that you're basically implying that Jesus isn't enough, I need to also have these works. I need to also uh, have these works of righteousness. And so that's what it is. Christ alone by faith alone. So it's separate. So that's the issue for each one. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to become more clear on our understanding of uh, the atonement of Christ, what it means, its extent, how Christ paid for our sin, paid our sin penalty for us, that, that he who was a perfect sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God without spot or blemish, would die on the cross for our sins, that by trusting in him and him alone, that we might have everlasting life. So, Father, we pray that you would make that clear to anyone listening uh, to this message, that anyone who has never trusted Christ as Savior, trusted him alone, that they would do that as a result of what, of what your word teaches. And we pray for the rest of us that we might recognize that because we have been bought with a price, we are not our own. We are his, and we are to live for him and to serve him. And that doesn't save us or make us more savable. It is the consequence of being a new creature in Christ. We pray that you would also make that clear to every one of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.